If uh, you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. I've entitled this message, From the Text Itself, All Things New. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8, hear now the word of God. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine your word, we would take comfort in the knowledge that you have buried our sins in an ocean of the blood of Christ. We do pray, Father, that we would be able to look at your law as something beautiful, not something that condemns, but something that reveals both your holiness and righteousness but also the way that we should govern ourselves. We do pray, Father, even this morning as we examine this great work you have done and are doing, that we would behold it, recognize ourselves to be part of it, and live accordingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I took a walk recently, not by choice, it's because somebody ran into my car during Christmas and it's been in the shop for like six weeks. Anyways, so I took a walk. And uh, although the, the path that I took on this walk was, was near my house, it, it was not a path I normally take. Uh, at least I don't walk it. I generally would drive that, that route, just like any sound Californian. But as I... As I was walking, I, I went over like a little hill and I spotted buildings and bridges in Long Beach. Now, I live in Torrance. So I, I, we're talking about 15 miles away and I'm looking and I'm like, I recognize that bridge. I recognize those buildings. I, I can see the detail. You can see windows and doors. I'm guessing I noticed these things partially because... I was walking rather than driving, but I think I also noticed them because it was a particularly clear day. You know, sometimes on clear days, have you ever noticed there's mountains over here that I didn't realize were even there? And then sometimes mountains behind those mountains and snow and stuff like that. Something so simple as the clarity of a bridge or a building appearing, at least to me for that moment, to be so beautiful, reminded me of C.S. Lewis and his description of heaven in his final book of that Christian allegory, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. 
I've said this before, in my many years of ministry, I spend very little time trying to express the beauty of heaven or the horrors of hell. I, I just feel like if I try to get poetic about that, it, it just doesn't, either way, I don't reach there. I, I tend to leave those types of poetic efforts to Dante, right, and his inferno. I mean, if you want to really get a feel for hell, I guess you could read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Edwards. That's coming up at some point. I have it. One of these days, I'm just going to read it. But, I mean, you, if you read that, I mean, there, there, there is the skin-crawling welcome sign to hell, you know, where he writes, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. So you've got that, that horrifying notion of hell. And then you have Lewis, and I, I would say his very simple yet profound contrast to that in his description of heaven. He introduces this topic in this final book with the, the necessary instrument or, or attribute of those who would enter heaven. He writes, if however we truly love with the power of the one who loves truly, we have nothing to fear from the gates of hell, for we know they shall not prevail. I don't think he's offering a works righteousness here. He's just kind of saying, look at if you have true faith, the love you have in your heart, which you should have, is a love which comes from the one who actually truly loves. In his book, Lewis's characters stand, just so you get the picture here of what he's doing. They're at the threshold of death, and they're, they're kind of peering in to this like, very strange and wonderful place, and Lewis begins to describe it. Simple things like the sky and the grass, the, the wind. He's describing simple colors, but he's describing it in such a beautiful way that that which we wouldn't look at as normal is something ex extremely extraordinary. He describes a land where everything is allowed because there's simply no evil there. He poetically weighs life as experienced in a fallen world against the true life of those who actually cross that threshold. He makes this comparison. Quote, it is the difference between a shadow life lived among shadows and a real life lived in the light of life itself. He goes on to say, life, true life, the fullness of life is larger than any world in which death holds sway. God, who is life, true life, the fullness of life, is larger than any world he's created. The Christ child is unthinkably larger than the manger in which he lay. Lewis explains that life before death is a dream life the life that we're living. It's a shadow life. The, the true life is as different as the dream or the shadow from the real thing. We're, right now, according to Lewis and the way he's explaining this, we're in the shadow. We're in the dream. And the beauty 
of this current heavens and earth that we are experiencing today is that occasionally it shows us what the real thing looks like. You know, years ago, um, you know, not to endorse images, graven images, but the La Pieta sculpture by da Vinci, which is in, um, is it in the Louvre or is it in uh, St. Peter's Basilica? But you know that unbelievable sculpture by da Vinci was somebody hit it with a hammer, you know, tried to, dis to destroy it. Where is it? in the Vatican. Yeah. Oh, is it Michelangelo? Yeah. And I've seen it. I just thought da Vinci did it, but I'm, I'm sure you're right. I don't think I'll lose the point here. No, I like to be corrected. And that is that you see something that was beautiful and yet somehow defaced, right? It's not what it it's not what it originally was. I mean, it's been all fixed and corrected. But it's the idea of walking through a museum where maybe an earthquake took place or a fire took place, and you're seeing the remnants of the beauty. It, it, the fire didn't utterly destroy it. And to the extent that you can see the beauty, you get an idea of what it's supposed to actually look like. That's the way Lewis is describing this life compare, compared to heaven. And when the believer goes through that door of life, to death, they are actually fully introduced to life, like awakening from a dream. No fatigue, no discomfort, no shortness of breath, no boredom. All these things are the symptoms of not being fully awake. My wife and I last night watched her favorite movie and one of my favorite movies, The Wizard of Oz. Spoiler alert here. The whole movie's a dream. It was made in 1939, so. But, but the dream is in color, right? And the beginning of the movie, the end of the movie are in black and white. But what Lewis is saying is it's just the opposite. It's when we wake up, truly wake up, when this life comes to an end, that the color begins. I was comforted, I have to say, in my research of Lewis to find that he also, even with a bit of acknowledgement, recognized his own lack of ability in fully describing the glory of heaven. When the dream is, has ended, he writes this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Well, that's about as good as you can get, I think, in terms of a human author trying to describe the glory of all things new. Now, verse 5 of chapter 21, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. You see, friends, this is the great promise. Regardless of the beauty of the greatest life, there is something amiss. And it needs renewal. I think for most of us, myself included, I enjoy my life. I think we have a, we have a here in Southern California with the weather and with the food and with the friends. And I mean, I, we of all people should not complain, but we also recognize this. Something as beautiful as your life might be is not quite right. Lewis put it a minute ago. He goes, a world in which, the de- in which death holds sway. Even No matter how good your life is, you have to understand this. It's like a walk down the block, and you know at the corner there is the bully of death waiting for you. And God grant us the wisdom to understand that when we get to the end of that block, we have no chance against that bully unless we take hold of the one who has defeated that bully forever, and that is Christ. But this is the promise that God and literally is making all things new. It's this idea of this ongoing process that he's doing. All that was lost in Adam is gained in Christ and more. At the fall, it crumbled. And God made a promise. Even there in Genesis 3.15, at the dawn of man, at the very fall, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this through the seed of the woman. And there is that promise peppered all throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to restore that which was destroyed. Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? It will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I I think we need to kind of try to appreciate this idea of rivers in the desert. We see a a major theme in the Bible oftentimes is wells. There's a well. This idea of water, we take it for granted. This last weekend, our hot water heater went out, so we didn't have hot water for a day. It's pretty rough. (laughs) We had water. We just didn't have hot water. And we got a little hot tub spot in the backyard, so there was hot water there. But it was pretty tough. (laughs) It's really not, right? When you read your Bibles, it's like water is life. You you can go a long time without food, but you can't go very long without water. That's the image given here. God's going, look at this world has become a desert, but I'm bringing water to it. People love Palm Springs. I like Palm Springs. People go there for vacation. They go there for retirement. But you know what everybody seems to forget? Palm Springs is a desert. But somebody figured out how to do what? Get water there. You get water there, and all of a sudden the desert's not a desert anymore. And as wonderful as Palm Springs is, heaven's better. (laughs) And though this newness that we're talking about is fully realized at the end of time, similar to that clear view that I had that made me think of this when I took that walk, we have glimpses of that even now. Little tastes of the real thing. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, some of your versions say, you know, he's a new creature, but that's not, 
In the Greek, that's not what it says. This is the better translation. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago, but what we have to realize is, in a certain sense, the old things have passed away. In a certain sense, all things have become new, and that's you. You who are in Christ, you're a new creation. We are already a new creation. God has already put his seal upon you. And as we've discussed in our previous meetings, he would ever have us reside emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, in our true citizenship, which is in heaven. That is our identity. That is, that is who we are. That, that is our ultimate and true citizenship. You know, it's an interesting thing about this water. I was just, as, uh, as Aaron was up here talking about the water and, and uh, you know, a lot of us haven't felt what it's like to really, really be thirsty. And I, I am a person who doesn't drink. I still play volleyball. I still play in tournaments. And I get pretty tired, um, so tired that my wife was there and some lady next to her said, is your husband okay? <laughs> and I think she actually said, we need to dial 91 But what's weird about me is I never get thirsty. I could play in a whole tournament and not drink any water. And then my doctor informed me, and as as well as everybody else, that's not really good. It's not a superpower. Even if you're not thirsty, you probably should drink some water. So the fact that we don't feel the thirst, not necessarily a good thing. We need to know that we need the water. John is called to write these things. Write these things because they are true and faithful. God has chosen, just so you understand, in a world where, you know, everything is very emotionally based and the religion has become an emotionally based religion, God has chosen to bring forth his self-revelation, his self-disclosure through that which is written, that which can objectively be read and evaluated. The scriptures, my friend, they are a great gift that God has given to us. In the Old Testament, Ezra stood on a platform, which is where we get the idea of a pulpit from. And he read the law, and we read in Nehemiah 8 9, he read the law because they, they hadn't read it in a while. And all the people wept. I mean, it, it was like a happy cry. There is something... Horrible, and I think a lot of us are beginning to feel this. There is something horrible about losing the truth. Many of us feel that that is the current cultural trajectory. Truth, you know, we have my truth. Well, that's your truth, and that's my truth, and truth becomes an opinion. It becomes subjective. That, that language is dangerous language, the idea that I have my truth and you have your truth. I might have my opinion and you might have your opinion, but there's something transcendent called truth. And it's not interested in my opinion. <laughs> it's what it is. And when Jesus said, I am the truth, he was making quite a statement. 
that we feel this when the truth becomes extracted from the world in which we live. We feel, I think, at least I feel it. Not being an engineer, I feel this. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you should have known Aaron, I'd have the last word here. In Amos 8.11, it's, he uses almost like a, it's, it's metaphorical, but behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It, people are very comfortable going, I don't, you just keep your Bible out of this. I don't want to hear it. We should pray that, it, that our church, pray that your church, Pray that all churches will ever appeal to the word of God. Verses 6 and 7, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You know, um, there is a common sentiment among Christians that Jesus will come again and sort things out. I mean, that's kind of a very popular view in terms of current end times, you know, that everything's a mess and Jesus is going to come and he's going to start his kingdom and he's going to fix all the stuff that needs fixing. Well, let me just say he will come again. He will come again in the flesh, but it is not to sort things out. Jesus has no unfinished business other than judgment. He comes again, and when he comes again, it's judgment day. And I, I say this not just to be eschatologically polemical and get into an argument. I'm saying this because I think we need to have a higher view of the cross. I think all, a lot of this stems from a low view of what Jesus actually accomplished in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. All that is necessary Everything necessary for the renewal. Everything necessary for the, you know, the all things sorted out, right? Everything has been accomplished. Historically, they call this the accomplished work of redemption. And they call it the accomplished work of redemption because it's been accomplished. We're not waiting for him to come and accomplish something he's not yet accomplished. The author of Hebrews says he will come again not to contend with sin. He's not going to come and deal with sin. You know why? Because he already dealt with sin. Now it's just a matter of application. You have the accomplished work of redemption, and you have the applied work of redemption. And if you're sitting here as a believer, that has happened to you. The Holy Spirit has applied to your life that which Jesus accomplished when he arose from the dead. The waters are flowing through the desert, and they are yours freely. It's a gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And like I said earlier, the desert provides an atmosphere of danger throughout Scripture. It is an atmosphere where you can't survive without water, Water is life. 
And even though, as I said, there are times when I feel like I can exercise and not be thirsty. I'm horrible at drinking water. This is all the water I drink. I'm like, when was the last time you drank a glass of water? Sunday. And half the time, I bring it up and I don't drink it. I know that. Somebody's like, you realize you put it up there and you don't drink it. But I, I think that there would be a time even for me where I'd be like, I really need a sip of water. And many times I have visited strong men. You know, I'm thinking of two men in particular. One guy was 6'8", great volleyball player. Another guy about 6'6", both super athletes who, you know, who have both gone to be with the Lord, but visiting them in the hospital where they were not allowed to drink anything. And they just wanted a little ice chip, and for some reason they couldn't have it. You know, just this, this, this need, and I think that, that if we don't recognize at some level our need for that chip of ice, that mustard seed of, of faith, then we might delude ourselves into thinking we're fine when we're really not. Jesus offers the spiritual quenching of your soul. It is a life that is given to us, and at least if I'm reading this correctly, it's given to us, and then it pours forth from us. At a time, there's there's an event here in the Bible where Jesus is being threatened. It happens, obviously, all the time. But it was like at a feast, and he's being threatened, Eventually, you know, they would make good on those threats. But we read in John 7, 37, obviously the same author who's writing the Revelation. He writes, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we, we drink it, and it flows from us from us, the Christian's life, your life is not to be a stagnant, idle pond only receiving. It comes to you and it should flow from you. Our lives should be animated by ebbs and flows where God is feeding us and we are feeding others. The the spiritual gifts, for example, are not a gift for you. They are a gift given to you to give to others. And I have to say, I'm a little concerned sometime, sometimes in my own Reformed community that we've become content with a lack of recognizing the need of the souls by which we're surrounded. We've got our own little ghettos we stay in. And we need to reach out. And we need to be concerned about the souls of the people. You know, I mean, I, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, on that judgment day, and Jesus said, I was, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. It's all these things on that judgment day in terms of what God has done in our lives where we are, in fact, serving, not just sitting there going, I've been taken care of, and the trip ends with me. No, no, we, we've got to be receiving the water, and then from us flows the water. 
he goes on, where we see once again this theme we've seen all through the Revelation of overcoming. You've probably heard me say that over 100 times now in these 56 sermons or whatever I've given. We are to overcome. We are to persevere. There is, there, let me put it this way. There is a certain sense in which we are called to love the world. We are, the Bible tells us to care for the creation. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors. We are to love God and love our neighbors. So there's a certain sense in which we are called by God, even as I just said, to love others, to reach out to others, to care for others. But there is another sense in which the world is a powerful adversary. We, we need to be able to make that distinction. The same author who wrote Revelation also wrote this in 1 John 2, 5-17, through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the same theme. John's writing really saying the same thing. He's like going, don't let the world run roughshod over your lives. You, you need to understand your citizenship and live accordingly. We, we are to be governed by something beyond this world. And if we're not governed by something beyond this world, you know what we are? Slaves. We're slaves of sin. We're slaves to this creation. And when we are governed by something beyond this world, when we persevere, when we overcome, when we follow the mandate that we've seen throughout this entire book of Revelation, we should be a blessing to others. It should be, as I said, it's a blessing to us and by extension, a blessing to those in whom we come into contact with. We are to be governed by something outside of this world, a kingdom that is not of this world. But let me tell you something about this world. It doesn't want to be governed. It wants to govern. And you know who it wants to govern? You. And can you tell whether or not you're being governed by the things of this world, or are you being governed by something out of this world? The recurring theme in Revelation is to overcome. That the siren call of the world not hold sway in your life, but that your life would be governed by the grace and wisdom of God alone. Can you make that distinction? Do we even know what it means to overcome? And now we see the promise here becomes even more intimate. Remember we had read earlier, he goes, I will be their God and he will be my people. Then he, gets, he, goes, he goes singular here. I will be your God and you will be my son. There's like an individuality. We don't lose our individuality in heaven. We're not just a drop of water that falls into a bucket of, of nameless, faceless Jesus, after his resurrection, even though there were some bizarre things happening in terms of recognizing him, we will recognize each other in glory. There is a great individuality that is not lost in that corporate body of heavenly saints that we become part of. 
Verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm not going to go into minute detail of all these objectionable adjectives that we see John bringing up here. I, I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think it's a list that kind of shoots us off. He's probably highlighting some of the current prevailing sins that were causing people to reject the faith. But I will kind of briefly address the sins that he has brought up. This idea of the cowardly. Interesting first adjective, cowardly. I'm going to have to say, you know, it's at least my observation that we live in a culture that has accomplished the effeminizing of the faith. Churches are filled with women and run by women, and men need to be more like women, has been my experience in terms of what's going on in the church. Not that I have anything against women, but I think men should be men, and women should be women. And I mean, I, my, my daughter just got married, and I felt like one of the biggest compliments that I could pay him was she married a man, right? He's a man. And that's, we're not unclear about that. But somehow, we've taken courage, and we've turned it into something toxic. If, if a guy is trying to be courageous and protective and be a man, he can be accused of engaging in toxic masculinity. Now, maybe there is a thing where guys get that way, you know? I mean, I don't doubt that some guys can be jerks. But that's not manliness. That's not masculinity. That's just being a jerk. Don't get me started. <laughs> it's like when... <laughs> off script. Could be in trouble here. It's like when somebody has a negative comment about a person playing sports because they lose their temper and kick the ball or they yell and scream and somebody will go, oh, that guy is so, you know the word they'll use? Competitive. That's not being competitive. That's having a bad attitude. Competitive is, it's good to be competitive. It's good to try your hardest and be focused and play with courage and, and not allow fatigue or, or people rooting against you to, to dig in. As a coach, I want athletes who are competitive. I don't want athletes who have a bad attitude. Those are two different things. We need to kind of define what it means to be a man. And by the way, the cowardly here I don't think is referring just to men. I think it's referring in that context to anybody who's allowing the oppression of Rome and the persecution of Jerusalem to keep them from saying the things, the things that should, they should say. And I dare say almost everybody in this room is probably at a time in your life where you're in an environment where you're, where you're thinking to yourself, I should say something about my faith here, but I'm not going to because I'm a little afraid. You can't allow that to have control of your life. It may be odd to see in this list unbelief. Is unbelief a sin? I remember wrestling with that years ago. And I would say unbelief 
at least as I read the Bible, is a sin. We read in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let me explain to you briefly why I think it is a sin. I think it's a sin because God has revealed to every single person that he is. He has revealed that he is through that which is made, and he has manifested in our own minds that he is. And for us to live a life as if God does not exist is denying something that deep in our heart we know to be true. And that's sinful. That which is abominable means that which causes repulsion, the idea of turning away from something. You know, things where you're just going, I can't even look at that. Murder, he talks about murder. Seems like it should be obvious, but let me tell you something. If you study history, which I have a bit, and now you don't even have to go too far back in history, as you're beginning to see it. As bizarre as this seems, murder can transition into an acceptable societal behavior once you deny that men and women are made in the image of God. Once you deny that, and once you establish the fact that we're just the highest animal, then you've opened the door to things like abortion, euthanasia, even a book that came out, I mentioned it a number of months ago, that came out that justified the rioting and the murder that takes place during riots. All of a sudden, it's simply okay to kill. Sexual immorality. That's almost on every time there's a list. That's on the list, just so you know. Sexual immorality is the genesis of societal decay and corruption. It, it is the beginning of the end. I mean, why did Israel fall apart? Right? Everybody, gets, everybody thinks David got a pass because he had multiple wives. Everybody thinks Solomon had a pass because he had 600 wives and concubines. Everybody thinks that they got a pass. But it escapes their attention that it was those sins that led to, to, to David's family falling apart and the nation crumbling. You don't get away with it. Sexual immorality is the genesis of all sorts of societal decay. And just so you understand, the people who aggressively disregard the clear biblical proposition that sexual intimacy is to be confined to a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, when people are having parades to dismantle that, they have shown themselves to be reprobate. I mean, that's what the scriptures declare. That it's almost like in Romans 1 where he's going, okay, what is the first sign of a people who have, who have so rejected God that God is going, well, I'm going to turn you over to a reprobate heart? Well, what he talks about there is homosexuality. And let me, not to get too far into this, you can bring it up during Q&A if you'd like, but people, are, people will say, well, why are, you, why are you isolating homosexuality in terms of the big sin of the current era? Aren't people still doing all the other sins? Yeah, they are doing all the other sins, but I have yet to see a parade for adultery. I don't see a parade where theft is extolled. I don't see murderers going to the public library to teach children. So, so this is not something that is a 
merely a sin, it is something that is a sin and is being presented to our culture as that which is of value and is to be pursued and is to be celebrated. And what we read in the Bible is, no, this is something that indicates that you as a people have turned your back on the living God. They will crush your soul and they don't care. I've often thought about how long it took Sodom and Gomorrah to become so evil that they couldn't find ten righteous people in the whole either city. Because I don't think it happened overnight. I think the things that seemed so clearly sinful in one generation were not really that sinful in the next or the next and the next. And they were an example of what happened when a society utterly and completely rejects the truth of the living God. Sorcery, and then is added, seems an odd addition to this list until we realize that those who are engaging in sorcery are really seeking something or someone other than the true God for direction. I mean, admit it, haven't been times when you've wanted to go see a palm reader to get an idea of maybe what you should do. And it's just a way of you kind of going, well, I'm not going to trust the word of the providence of God or whatever wisdom he might give me. I want somebody to tell me what to do. And God is like, oh, no, you're getting bad information from a wrong source. And by the way, the Greek form of that word is pharmakeia, where we get the word pharmaceutical, which oftentimes causes a lot of people to go, this is somehow related to the drug culture as well. So you got sorcery and you got drugs all working together to crush a people. And the, real, the end result of all of this, and he finishes with this, is idolatry and lies. I, idolaters and liars. I mean, you've got to know this. I hope you know this. I hope you understand this. People don't want to admit it. It is the nature of man to worship. Yeah, you, yep, we might worship a famous musician or an athlete, you know, you might be a fanatic, right, a fan. But it is the nature of man to worship. John Calvin said, the mind of the natural man is an idol factory. It's a, we make idols. So here are your options. You will worship the true God or you will worship a false God. Those are your options. And I think G.K. Chesterton put it in his normal, clever way when he wrote, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Finally, let's not minimize what hangs in the balance here at the end of this little pericope, this passage. It's very common today to scoff at eternal judgment. People just kind of like blow it off. But on that issue, the scriptures are not silent. The lake which burns and the second death are real and they are prominent. That bully at the end of the corner that we all are going to have to face named death, that's the first death. But if we don't have Christ, after that death comes a worse death, eternal death. The lake of fire where the worm never dies that is what, like I said, I come up short, and I, I do. I wish I had the ability 
to horrify you right now. I wish I had the ability to express hell to you in such a way that you, as I heard with Jonathan Edwards, would grab the pillars of the church in fear that you might currently fall straight into hell. I think one of the biggest words of encouragement and compliments I ever got is in one debate I had with an atheist where, you know, in the comments after it was posted, somebody made the comment, Pastor Paul's view of hell is horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's hell. I mean, I'm like, where, where, in what universe have we arrived at this idea, even within our culture, that hell's not that bad? Maybe just to push this a little bit, we tend to think of hell as an evil place. I'm not sure if I buy that definition. I think hell is actually a place of justice. Hell is a place of judgment. God is not embarrassed of hell. Hell is a place where God's righteous judgments are fully experienced. But the good news is that mercy triumphs over judgment for those who've called upon the name of Christ. I pray to God that's you. We need to be careful that we don't view all these sinless adjectives I just went over as a contest we need to win in order to be saved. Should we run to win? I mean, the Bible says it explicitly, run your races to, to obtain the prize. We should seek to win. But the winning, just so you understand, the winning is not a matter of being better than others. I mean, if you want to play that game, the winning would be a matter of you being better than Jesus. Good luck with that. No. Here's the winning. Here is the answer to the call all through Revelation. The winning is to finish the race. The winning is, as Paul said, to keep the faith. The overcoming is, as Jesus taught numerous times, the overcoming is to endure to the end, to fight this battle, to fight this battle until the Lord brings us home and bestows the crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would preserve us. We do pray that we would hear these words of heaven and rejoice. We do pray that we would hear these words of hell and recoil. And we do pray, Father, that that we would not be indifferent to the souls of those by whom we are surrounded. We pray that the, the prospect of our friends and neighbors going to hell would cause us to work, cause us, Father, to respond, to care, to blow, as it were, the trumpet, that victory that comes through faith in Christ, the only one who can overcome death and hell. We do pray, Father, that we'd ever live this life as those who are members and have a citizenship in that glory where every day is better than the last, where there'll never be a time when we would have discontentment, 
but it would be, Father, a prepared place for a prepared people forever and ever, and may that ever cause our hearts to be comforted in Jesus' name. Amen.